Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1287, air date August 3rd, 2023. Okay, we should be live. Okay, good evening, everyone. It's Dr. Shiva Ayadure. Um, today's a very important month. Uh, it's August uh, 2023, but it's really the international month of email, email month. Um, and one of the things that really marks it is the fact that uh, nearly 45 years ago to this date, I created email, the system as we know it today. I'm the inventor of email. And uh, if anyone has any doubts about it, here's the official um, copyright notice, which is now in the Smithsonian, along with all my tapes and my documents and all the artifacts. But why do I want to talk about it? Is it to say, hey, I created email? Well, that's only a small part of it. But it's more to inspire everyone to a very, very fundamental truth that innovation occurs anytime, anyplace by anybody. I wanna talk in this context, what is innovation? Um, and then I wanna sort of walk you through uh, how email was created, but then large, but at a larger context, um, talk about where innovation actually comes from. Okay, we are taught to believe, unfortunately, um, in a frankly, a big lie, that all great innovations come from killing other people, war, right? How many history books have you read that say, oh, during war, people created this, and during war, we created this? So in Tamil, which is a very old South Indian language I speak, I still know how to speak it. They say you can touch your nose two ways, right? You can go like this, or you can go around your head and try to touch your nose, okay? Um, this is obviously a very stupid way of touching your nose. But those, yeah, so Matt's trying to do it. Thanks, Matt. Um, so those in power have convinced us that the way you innovate is you, you, you say, we're going to fight war and then be thankful out of war that you got Velcro or Tang, by the way, which did not come from innovation. And that's what they try to do with email. Okay. They do not want to give people the many, many rich examples that invention, innovation, and there's a slight difference between innovation and invention, I'll talk about that, um, that all innovation must come from trying to murder someone and kill someone and annihilate them. It surely cannot come from an individual caring for their community and trying to solve civilian problems. So just take a note of that, that we are taught over and over and over again, and it's a very deep psychological training, that we should be so grateful for funding trillions of dollars to go maim and kill other people and the little drips of innovation that come from that that come from that effort all right so we're told that tv came from you know the military industrial complex we're told that email came from that and so on it goes on but what's fascinating is that if you look at yourself and you go back looking at the arc of human history no one knows all the things that People we don't even know, irrigation, who really created it, right? Many, many things. But the fundamental issue is innovation is in our DNA. It is part of being human. In fact, octopuses innovate. Every All different animals actually innovate. They used to think that, oh, what made the human being different was we make tools. But they found animals creating all sorts of tools, right? So innovation is something that goes probably all the way back to a single cell organism as far as we know. But innovation is in our DNA. And this gets very important because 
if you think about who's an inventor, you think about someone with glasses, they're drooling, they have a beard, and they look all fucked up. You know, they talk in a nasally voice and they have little twitches, right? And then if you do that, you must be an innovator or you're a dropout out of a major school. So Bill Gates, oh, he went to Harvard and he dropped out. Mark Zuckerberg, he created Facebook, right? Um, but the reality is that none of that's true. It's actually a form of quote unquote racism. It's a form of segregation saying you have to look like this. You have to be from this world and then you can create and innovate. The more fundamental aspect of this is the following, and that is this, that um, when, you t when you accept a narrative like that, it's actually anti-human, and it's fundamentally even worse than anti-human. Um, it's actually, um, if you believe in any sense of divinity or God, it's anti-God in many ways. Why? Because... You know, if you read any of the ancient texts, it says the kingdom of heaven is within you. We're supposed to be co-creators with God. Innovation, creativity is really your expression of the divine. And to say that only a few people can innovate, those who go to MIT, those who go to Silicon Valley, is basically denying your divinity as a human being. You follow what I'm saying? It's basically saying that, in fact, it's creating the concept of a caste system that only these people can create. And in fact, in India, they have a caste system, which actually did say that, that only these people are smart, everyone else is a bunch of dumb fucks, and only these people can innovate, all right? And this is frankly anti-human. It's denigrating to every human being. So for me, it's very, very personal because as many of you know, I grew up in a caste system in India. I had all these ridiculous memories of people spitting at me, calling me different names, that I was considered a shudra, which is a low caste human being, which means we were supposed to only do certain things, all right? My mom would tell me stories when she went to the well to get water, they were chased away like a pig, right? And this is a denunciation of what it means to be human, that only these people, the Brahmins, are the only smart people and everyone else is stupid, all right? It's really fucked up, okay, when you think about it, at a very deep level. Um, and in America, we now have a caste system. It's way beyond deeper than race. It's a multi-racial aristocracy, which is creating a global caste system. And the purpose of that caste system is to say that only these are the centers of creation. So you go to Kendall Square at MIT. Oh, we have a lot of smart nerds there. Or you go to Silicon Valley. And what they're really doing is to tee it up that you go to those places and then you get funded and then you create a Google and you create a Facebook and you get to make a billion dollars. And the financial models of this are quite extraordinary because what they're saying is a finite set of people have billions of dollars in capital and they're going to invest it in these finite places, almost like genetically engineering innovation. And, and it's really fucked up because when you really talk to a venture capitalist, most of them are actually little old white boys who all get together and actually a multiracial group if not just white people who go to Harvard or Stanford or Yale and they have mamas and papas and they know how to get money from an insider's club. So they raise $10 billion fund and then they basically give it to their friends. So if Crystal starts a company today, there may be many others in some inner city who've created the exact same invention, but they'll give her $100 million. And then she has no customers they'll actually call up their friends and say, hey, give Crystal customers. 
And that's how it's all an inside game. And then they boost up the stock price and they say, oh my God, Crystal's a genius. And it's all becoming an insider's game. And what you see is the stuff that's coming out. We're not really innovating anything. I'm sorry, Twitter is not some great innovation. Facebook is not some great innovation. They're not like major things that transform society. So what's actually occurring is humanity is actually devolving. We're not really creating anything fundamentally different because we're saying only a finite set of people can in invent. Does that make sense? So this is deeply anti-human. It is restricting the progress of all humanity. There, there's probably, you know, we have 8 billion people. I would venture to say at least half of them, particularly young kids, young people can invent all sorts of wild things. And if we're restricting it to only, well, about, you know, 8,000 people go to MIT and you're saying only 1% of those can invent, think about what you're saying. Only like 80 people can be great inventors. And then you go to Silicon Valley and a few other places. So you're only saying like, oh, these thousand people can be inventors and everyone else is shit. It's, and this is why no major significant problems are being solved in the world. We haven't really had any great innovations. We really haven't. It's all been incremental little tweaking. So in India, someone will take Amazon and call it Flipkart or something like that, right? That's not an in invention, right? So humanity is really suffering because we're not making any massive gains in fundamental sciences. But, and in fact, we're not integrating, let's say, very diverse kinds of ideas, ancient and modern and science and tradition or East and West. But I've been very, very fortunate to be able to live in these multiple worlds. I was fortunate to go to MIT, but I was also fortunate to grow up in Newark, New Jersey, where I created the first email system. So I have a very, very different perspective that great innovations can occur anytime, anyplace by anybody. And that the impetus for innovation is not war. It's actually people who actually love and care for other people and can actually solve problems. So as a part of that, you know, I think it's important to, you know, share my own personal journey because Everything I share with you and everything I've struggled with is not like I'm reading from a cue card. It's not like we have Madison Avenue people coming to us and saying, okay, Dr. Shiva, now you're going to say this. Now you're going to say this. Now you're going to say this. All of Kennedy, all of Trump's, all these politicians, none of these people have any direct connection when they say, oh, yeah, I understand your plight. They don't understand any of your plights. They know nothing about everyday people. I've had to deal with the injustices of being a low caste Indian. I've had to deal with Zionism, okay, in my own personal life. I've had to deal with fighting people who take away your credit. I've had to be on the streets helping people because they couldn't get into places like MIT. I've had to organize food service workers because my mom was a worker who worked in a factory and you know she lost her life to pulmonary fibrosis, right? So this is all very real for me. This is not theoretical. You know, I grew up with hardworking people who worked their butt off, you know, um, who had skills. I had, you know, I earned my way into MIT. I earned all my degrees. I started my companies without ever taking venture capital money. So all of this is very real to me. That's why at this point in my life, I call fucking Kennedy, fucking booby effing Kennedy, because this guy's an absolute charlatan. Trump has golden plated toilet seats. He makes money from working people. Oh my God, I got indicted. Give me money. Okay. So these people are absolute frauds. 
And that's why, because of the great love I have for people I came from, people I grew up with, and everyone, you know, people work hard, I value labor. Labor is more important than capital, hard work. And people get up in the morning, you know, Tony Pierce is here from um, New Zealand. He works on a farm, right? He's got to get up every morning. You know, he's got to go up when it's cold. Doesn't matter what happens, right? Um, uh, building software, if you really are doing it alone, you got to go in and things don't work. You got to fix problems. If you're, an, uh, if you're a plumber, if you're a mother, you're a freaking problem solver. You have to do 20 different things to keep a household going, right? These people don't have to do any of that, guys. They have 20 maids. They fly falcons. That's what Kennedy does, okay? They don't have to live our lives. So once you really get this, you start recognizing why are we bowing down to them? Why are we even giving them any credence? Where is our own dignity for ourselves? Why do you think they care for us? And they don't. They absolutely don't. They steal our work. They steal our labor. They steal everything we do. And they think it's okay because deep in their mindset, they actually think they're better than you. And more importantly, they hate you. They hate the concept of America. They hate the concept of freedom of speech. They don't really want to give it to you. They never wanted to give it to you. And they only think we're, we're their slaves, we'll work our butts off, and they'll actually steal our credit. So when you get to the reality of this, you start honoring yourselves and you start honoring those people who actually do the fucking work. And you should have a great despisement of them who steal your stuff. And if you don't, then you've become what I call a house slave, as Malcolm X said, okay? You cannot be house slaves. We have to be field slaves. We're off the plantation and we're going to shatter the swarm. So let me um, share with you my journey, okay? The invention of email, first of all, let's talk about the environment, the ecosystem. It didn't take place in the ecosystem of a big fucking university. It didn't take place in the ecosystem of big military. It didn't take place in the ecosystem of big industry all coming together. Military, industrial, academic complex. That's not where email occurred. Neither did the invention of TV by a young boy called Philo Farnsworth. Now, Philo didn't have to deal with the color issue, which I had to deal with, but TV was also created in a small farm in Franklin, Idaho. Email was created in a small medical college in the heart of Newark, New Jersey, which is predominantly African-American. And a lot of people are afraid to go there because they think they're going to get mugged, okay? Even now. So think about what I'm saying, email. The thing that all of you use today and television was not created by the military industrial academic complex. It was invented by 14 year old boys. Just wrap yourself around that for a second and just absorb what I'm saying. A 14 year old boy in Franklin, Idaho created TV and a 14 year old boy in Newark, New Jersey, invented email, and you're looking at him. Now, Philo Farnsworth's story is quite fascinating. You know, he saw the ways that the cows on a farm would do the Z pack. You know how they, the cows, they furrow the, the soil, right? And he saw the cows moving like this. And he had an idea that he would set up two tubes and he would send, you know, a raster tracing, right? That's how TV was created, right? You trace out a screen. So it came from his observation of something 
and generalizing it to something else. He Now, how did he create TV? He had a loving family. He had a mentor and he had access to some equipment. 14-year-old kid. RCA out of, and out of Stanford and those guys came to his lab and he was very open because when you're a 14-year-old kid, you're just excited. You want to share your stuff with everyone. They stole all of his stuff and then they started producing TVs because he didn't have the manufacturing capability. But he also got a U.S. patent because you could patent physical devices. So he has a patent and over here, RCA is making his invention and he files a lawsuit. And remember, a United States patent is for 20 years. He fights them, fights them, fights them. He's not making any money. In the 19th year, he wins his lawsuit. He's only got one year left, so he makes no money. He dies, I heard, an alcoholic. It took 60 years for him to get a statue built in Congress acknowledging he's a father of TV. But think about the struggle he had to go through. But he did everything. It wasn't done by at Stanford. It wasn't done by a big company. It wasn't done by the military. It was done by a 14-year-old kid. Let that just absorb in. How many other 14-year-old kids are out there who have, when you're 14, you don't have a sense of what's impossible. You think out of the box. It's the nature of being a teenager. How, ma how many other people's energy do we, now we give a lot of people weed, right? We tell them you can't do this. We tell them you can't walk outside. You can't, I mean, the whole stuff is very constrained for a kid. So I very much empathize with Philo's story. Now you go to my story. Okay, so this is 1978. I had just gone to New York University as a 14 year old. I was 40, one of 40 kids selected in a very prestigious program. Even though I the, the cutoff of that program was 16, I was 14. So people had to write me many, many recommendation letters saying, this guy's a pretty smart kid. You should let him in. So I had to struggle right there, even though I was not qualified. Just like now, people say, oh, you're not qualified to run for president. Well, we'll see. Okay? The Constitution gives me full rights to run for president. So I've always had to challenge things. My parents have always had to challenge things. All of you had to have to struggle. So I have great dignity for people who struggle, particularly my parents. So great, now I get to go to NYU. I graduate number one in that class. Not number two, but number one out of 40 kids. Get the honors award. And you can see it all on inventoreofemail.com. Now I go back to high school and I don't have any math, any science, physics courses to take. I finished all of them. So a very wonderful woman by the name of Stella Oleksiak. And by the way, I have to thank my parents, my dear mom, she would drive me to the train station in Newark, New Jersey, like five, six in the morning. And then I would take a train as a 14 year old kid into New York, which is pretty wild because you're walking through Washington Park with people trying to sell you drugs, crime literally taking place in front of you. And what was really amazing was when I used to take that train ride, it was an hour and a half train ride, this big black guy, uh, his name was Jenkins. He watched me and he said, man, you should be careful. You shouldn't be going into New York alone. He ended up becoming a very close friend. He ended up becoming my bodyguard. And this guy worked in a bronze foundry. If you've ever been to them, he would make big bronze sculptures. He would literally, for others, he would be pouring molten metal. It was quite extraordinary. But he grew up in Newark, but he saw me as this young kid. He didn't want me to get hurt. He ended up becoming a family friend for many, many years. 
quite amazing, right? A loving human being wanted to make sure a kid wouldn't get hurt and then becomes family friends. The teacher of mine was a guy called Henry Mullish, who was a professor. He just recently died in Israel and I was invited to give his memorial lecture several years ago. So you met all these amazing people, everyday ordinary people. They weren't fucking Kennedys, they weren't fucking Trumps. They were everyday people who loved science or engineering or loved their work. So in that environment, I learned computer science at the number one institute in the world called Corrent Institute of Mathematical Sciences as a 14 year old kid. Come back into high school, I got some humanities courses to take and a wonderful teacher, um, Stella Alexiak, she had this concept of independent study. And remember this is 1978. The Department of Education was just created in the United States. Prior to that, the Department of Education, I don't know if people know, most schoolrooms are single room schoolrooms. You may remember this, you know, one small schoolrooms, um, schoolhouses, right? And in those schoolhouses, if it went from zero to eighth grade, you had every age was there and everyone learned together. When the Department of Education got involved, they started telling teachers, you can't teach this, or you have to teach this, you have to teach this. They took away the teacher's relationship with the student so they could figure out what was right for the student. But Stella Oleksiak was still from that old days. And she said, this guy's smart. We got to figure out what to do for him. And meanwhile, I had found a physicist at a small medical college in, in Newark, New Jersey. And this physicist, Dr. Michelson, you know, he was a smart guy. He was a uh, nuclear physicist. He had just come out of Brookhaven National Labs and he was given a job at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School to start using computers to analyze medical data to see if we can create new medicines or you know new protocols or et cetera. So he was setting up a small computer lab and this is 1978, a scientific computing lab. And he saw in me, whatever he saw in me he said, you know what, I'm gonna give you a job, but here's a requirement. I'm gonna give you a job but the requirement is that we're going to treat you like an equal, which is quite extraordinary. That is not a caste system. You guys follow what I'm saying? Even though I was a 14-year-old kid and he was 38 or 40, and there were everyone in the lab was 50, 60 years old, he goes, you're going to get a desk, you're going to show up to work on time, and we're going to just judge you on your work, meritocracy. That's quite extraordinary. And he gave me access to all these computers, right? Which as a kid, was pretty amazing. Many computers were just starting to come. Now those old big mainframe computers, you could send simple, very simple text messages and you had to write all these commands. That's not what I'm talking about, is anywhere near what I created, okay? That existed back in you know, in the 1800s with Samuel Morse sending simple messages through electrical devices. All right, so Dr. Michelson initially uh, gives me the opportunity to use my skills in computing to look at why babies are dying in their sleep. And I write some programs. And in fact, I ended up publishing a paper because I was able to predict when a baby would stop, stop sleeping. But the other thing he gave me the opportunity to do was to create a system. And that's where I learned systems. You see, in those days, a office which could be the office of the president, the office of the prime minister, the office of a medical school, ran by two phenomenon. We didn't have these things called cell phones, okay? These did not exist. 
you didn't even have fax machines. But the way they operated was through this inter-office mail system. In every office, you literally had this hole in the ceiling and there was these plastic tubes which would go up and they would connect all these offices. And every office had a secretary who would write a memo, a letter, and it would get put into these envelopes, into these pneumatic tubes and they would get shot around. Or sometimes someone came and picked up your letter, but this letter had a very particular format. It was called a memorandum to, from, subject, date, and then a line. And then you could put CC, carbon copy, BCC. Then you would write the body and then you could attach something. Sound very familiar? It was called a proverbial memo. It was the model that was used for email. WhatsApp doesn't have CC. Facebook doesn't have CC, BCC, right? None of those things. It was a construct that was created. It was in many ways the first social media because if I was, was, let's say, writing to Terry Hicks and Terry's my boss and I say, dear Terry, I would like to hire Matt Morovic, right? Attached is Matt's resume. And I may CC, you know, Deanna and Tracy, they may be in HR because I want them to review the resume, do background checks. And then I may BCC my boss's boss. So it's, you see what I'm saying? So People, so when the secretary put this letter memo together, she'd have to make, take a piece of paper, put a carbon paper, put another paper and type it. There's no keyboards, guys. It was a typewriter, all right? And if she had to do two, three CCs, she had to do two typings. There was no Xerox machines yet. It was a very hard work. If she had to do 20 CCs, oh my God, she'd be there all night typing away. And all of this got put into these inner office mail envelopes. And by the way, how did that letter get co constructed was there was something called the inbox and an outbox and then folders, things got filed. There was a trash can. You see, all of these were pieces of the inter office mail system. It's a system. Everyone understand that? It's a system of interconnected parts. There's no system if you don't have the inbox. There's no system if you don't have the outbox. There's no system if you don't have paper clips. There's no system if you don't have carbon paper. There's no system if you don't have the paper clips that do the attachments. You needed all of these pieces. And it was a very, very organized system. And I was asked to convert this entire system to the electronic version. And I had to do it on a mini computer, which only had eight kilobytes of memory. <laughs> Think about what I'm saying. Eight kilobytes, not megabytes, not gigabytes. And I had to do it in a programming language called Fortran 4, which was written for scientific computing. We didn't have all these other languages because who used computers in 1978? Old white guys with little pocket protectors and with their little white lab coats. And they used a program called Fortran, which meant formula translation. And I had to do it in eight kilobytes of memory. So I'm gonna play you a video right now because after my stuff went to the Smithsonian and the and people didn't believe that I created email and I had to fight it and I was in the middle of my lawsuit, which I ended up winning, I went back to Newark and I created a small scholarship for 14 through 18-year-old kids and it's open to everyone because I believe 14 through 18-year-old kids are the ones who actually, I would hire if I could, a bunch of 14 to 18-year-olds. But unfortunately, a lot of them are in Ritalin right now and smoking weed, you know? That's what the educational system has done to them. It's really sad. But for, so, 
you know, I was asked to convert that entire system. Every feature had to be there into the electronic version. And why did I do it? I did it because I loved these women who were secretaries. I saw them belaboring, writing these memos all day, hurting their fingers, you know, working day and night. And I took all of those features and I embodied it in 50,000 lines of computer code, 14 year old kid. I used to work until two in the morning. Sometimes I slept in that lab and my mom would have to come the next morning and pick me up. Because I had to go to high school, <laughs> all right? So she'd come at five in the morning and drive me back to high school, all right? And I wrote 50,000 lines of all of this wonderful code which emulated every one of those features, inbox, outbox, registered mail, CC, BCC, every address book. And I had to print an email, it was quite extraordinary looking back at it. And um, I named that system email, a term never used before in the English language. So I, as a 14 year old kid wrote the code and I came up with the word. It was not an obvious term in 20, uh, sorry, 1978. I looked at the word and I said, oh, Email. I didn't know what to even pronounce it right. And the reason I had to use five characters was the operating systems only allowed five characters. If maybe it allowed more, I would have called it something else. Named it email, wrote the code. And let me play you a video of a guy called Bob Field, who was at that time, I think Bob must have been 45 years old. He's about 80 now. And he was one of the database guys. And so instead of me telling you this, I'm going to play this video. Hopefully everyone can hear it. Um, but you'll hear from Bob sharing, you know, his, um, let me share this here. And I have to also share it to everyone else um, at home on social media. So let me just share it also there for people. So here you go. So this is one of my colleagues, Bob Field, and sharing all right, I think I just want to check. I did the sharing right. Let me stop sharing again. So I just want to check because you have to select a key here which says make sure the audio is on. Okay, good. So this was in 2013 when I went back and I started this scholarship to help other young kids um, anywhere in the world. Anyone can apply. Um, so let me play Bob's video here, okay? So this is Bob Field. Um, here we go. So it was remarkable to be able to build oh, such a large system, yeah. to build such a large system with the limited resources that he had available, forgetting even the ideas, just the perseverance of the implementation of the scope of this system on the systems that we had available. Nowadays, computing uh, programmers they have access to gigabytes worth of memory. We were running systems where she had to write in 65,000 lines of code that ran into anywhere from 7 to 11 kilobytes. That's thousand, not mega, million, not giga, billion bytes of code. Manually segment the code, overlays, all the things. Just from the sheer point of view of being able to do that with any program was a monumental accomplishment. Forgetting aside the innovativeness of what he was actually creating. That was really an act of perseverance. 
course he did it in a language that's dedicated to numbers and he's doing a text oriented uh, program. <laughs> it's nice to remember the past. So it's pretty extraordinary, okay? Uh, and I'm glad I did that video, but I hope it helps you understand. So that's one video I wanted to share with you. Another video is when I went back to that medical college, uh, Dr. Michelson. You can't hear me, John? Hold on. Can you hear me now, John? That's weird. Okay, how about now, John? Yes? Okay. So I don't know if you guys heard that. So that's Bob Field. And Bob's um, last time I heard he was quite sick, but he's about 80 years old. But you guys understand that this was extraordinary what I did. And I worked my butt off, guys. So when these fucking people say you didn't invent email, it's like, are you fucking crazy? But I never fought for that, you see, because I was taught just to, now you have to understand when I was creating this, we let Hewlett Packard, this is 1978, I was so excited. Um, we let anyone come see our stuff. We didn't like, uh, you know, what's his face, Steve Jobs, have people sign all these things or you can't secrecy agreements. It was quite open. Everyone saw what we did. We ran huge seminars. Hewlett Packard was watching what I did, IBM, because they used to sell us equipment. So let me play this other video from Dr. Michelson, who was my mentor, the gentleman who actually gave me this opportunity. And it's, uh, I think it's here. Let me, uh, uh, I think it's this one here. So let me share this screen. And I have to go here. Let me stop this. I have to, uh, sorry, I have to go here. And I also want to share it with people on StreamYard so everyone at home has a chance to see this. So I did these two videos, you know, they're not great. Well, you know, they're not any major productions, but let me bring up this one. Um, so I think everyone can see it here. John, can you see it? You can see it, right? All right. So let me play this video. And this is Dr. Michelson. This is when I went back uh, to share um uh, you know, the fact I was starting this foundation. Here we go. Um, why am I more and more impressed every time I listen to you? Um, uh, obviously, we're all, I'm gratified that uh, you are here, that um, we can uh, share uh, what was a, a very, very exciting experience that um, started in 1977. And I remember meeting your mom Actually, you're a mom and I worked in the same department. That was our group. We were called Scientific Data Processing. And we ran this network, which we called the Laboratory Computer Network, uh, started in about 1976. We were actually building real networks, which uh, connected the computers way before that was unfashionable. And it worked. Uh, I remember talking to Mina. And she said, Shiva, I have a very smart son. And I was thinking to myself, that's what every mother says. They all say that they have a really smart son. 
And then I learned a little more about you. And we met shortly thereafter. Uh, and, and I was impressed immediately with your enthusiasm and the fact that you were already a computer expert. Uh, and, and I think I made a deal with you. I thought I could. We had a covenant. But look, I'm going to get a project for you. I'm going to figure out something for you. And we're going to let you be part of an adult team. You have to act like an adult. You have to return the favor. And you agreed. And shortly thereafter, I think Livingston High arranged for you to spend several hours a day. If you were, if you were not doing any um, work at home, which I know you were, uh, it, is, it is even more amazing. But we, I, I, I thought, I think that we had the, the idea early on of the inter-office memo system. Uh, and what was interesting, folks, and I think that Shiva makes this point very, very well. Uh, to me, it was a challenging project, but I knew that we could do it. Others didn't because, because maybe they were sitting in labs. They were, they, were, they were looking at things on the atomic level. But we were at the point in time where ordinary users could use the computers. You didn't have to be a crazy expert. This was 1977. Things were moving along. Actually, it wasn't our job to be building electronic inter-office email systems. We were supposed to be supporting science, and we did, and we did. Uh, uh, but it was it was just so tantalizing to say, hey, we are at the point where we can take a human process, a real human process, instead of just using, it, using uh, this, this equipment to crunch numbers, we were, we were at, at a point where um, we could not, not only automate an important human process, a human business process, but, but humans could use it. And I knew we had the tools. We had a primitive network that spanned at least two um, campuses. If I recall, it was a T1 network, 1.5 megabit um, net, network connecting the young campuses. Um, we had language um, processors. We had a Fortran compiler. We had a primitive database system. We had, te we had uh, text um, processors. You know, we have all the tools. And this, this ought to work. Uh, and, and I gave Shiva the challenge, which he accepted, and he worked with us. You remember, as a team, we had many, many uh, design sessions. He was, he was front and center. He understood everything that was um, going on. And, and over time, the 14-year-old kid wrote almost every piece of the code. It's possible that I wrote something, Bob, Bob, Bob I'm sure, wrote them something. We end up, it ends up with, with about 
55 or 60,000 lines of Fortran, uh, which, was, which was not exactly a rich, immersive environment. Uh, primitive tools, primitive editors and debuggers. Uh, I believe that the, the design ended up with about 35 cooperating programs. This was a big system. And towards the end of the year, when we had a working model, um, uh, we, we, we ran um, <clears throat> a seminar in one of our big lecture theaters. And I believe there were a lot of people there. There were a lot of curious people who just wanted to see, see about this thing which we called email or the electronic inter-office email on system. And we had a lecture theater. It was plastered, right? There were, there were, there were charts and um, diagrams and um, snippets of code across the whole room. And this 14-year-old kid is on the um, podium telling us all about it. Uh, so it was, um, uh, it was, it was a very, very interesting time. Uh, I am, we are, we are all gratified that uh, we, we had the opportunity. And, and I firmly believe in, in the, in the, um, in, in the um, thesis that innovation can occur anywhere anytime by anyone if you have the right environment and again con congratulations Shiva it was it was a great achievement and uh, we are all very very proud so anyway you heard it uh, if anyone is wondering about you know it's it's I'm, I'm glad I preserved a lot of that um, those videos. But if you understand, this was a real event that took place in a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey. And I don't think I've shared those videos before, have I, Crystal? But uh, it's important for people to understand this, that yes, a 14-year-old kid invented email. Now, I did that in that medical school. And several years later, I won what was called one of the baby nobles. In those days, two companies Intel and then later Westinghouse it was called the Westinghouse Science Awards. You can look at it. It was considered the most prestigious science awards. I won one of the awards and uh, it was written up in the local newspaper. New York Times didn't cover it. Boston Globe didn't cover it. It was written up in the local newspaper and you can look at all that. Um, and subsequent to that, um, when I came to MIT, you know, on the front page of MIT, um, I was, you know, accepted to MIT. That's a whole nother story we can talk about. I, no one even told me about MIT. Um, there's a lot of jealousy in the schools I went to because, you know, people like me should not be doing any of this stuff, right? It was only for certain kinds of people. But um, anyway, regardless, uh, somehow I made it into MIT. And I want to just share with you so all of you guys can share this with all your family and friends. But there's a site called Inventor of Email. And um, I had to create this site much later, 33 years later, but it's got all the artifacts um, that are all here. You should all go look at it um, and study it and share it with your children, particularly. Um, and if you go through this, you'll see all the code that's there. Um, you know, all the, uh, what I actually created, the history of email, 
Um, you'll also understand um, what I had to put together, all the features. You know, when I had to put this together, these are all the features of email. When I met with those secretaries, I had to, these are for my notes. All these features are email. Email is not the simple exchange of text messages. Okay, this is email. When you log into your email, you see all these things. So I had to create all those features. And it, you, in fact, all the code snippets are here. If you go in here, you'll see all those code snippets. So this was a Herculean effort that I had to do many, many years later when I was viciously attacked after the stuff went into the Smithsonian. I'll talk about that. Um, but you can see when I first came to MIT, it was on the front page of MIT. You can see it right here. You know that this um, this was the the official newspaper of the MIT administration, and it talked about this young kid inventing email. It was right. It was, it was in a, a newspaper called Tech Talk. But anyway, why am I sharing all of this? Because the facts of the invention of email. First, I wrote all the code. You have eyewitnesses. You saw it. It's not me making some shit up. Okay, I did the work named it email, have the code. Um, but then something more interesting happened. When I came to MIT 1981, the president of MIT was Reagan's science advisor, Paul Gray. And Dr. Gray had heard about my invention. I was elected student body president in freshman year, and he used to have this Christmas party at his house, and I was invited. And Dr. Gray said, you know, it's too bad that the stupid Supreme Court is not recognizing software patents. You see, this was so early, guys. People thought you could only get patents for like, you know, a brush or, you know, a physical device, right? A cup, right? Or a microphone. They, they didn't know what software was. It's something in the ether, right? You don't actually see software. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't really see the Zoom software. So Dr. Gray was quite upset, but he said in 1980, the Computer Software Act had been passed, which allowed you to use copyright law to protect software inventions. And he told me to apply for that, which I did. Didn't have lawyers, my parents weren't wealthy. And on August 30th, 1982, this is why we call you know this email month. Okay, on August 30th, 1982, I get issued the first US copyright for email, computer program for electronic mail system. And that's on August 30th, 1982. So is there any controversy? I wrote the code, I have eyewitnesses. I fucking named it email, I've won awards, and I have the freaking document. There's no controversy. The only controversy that could exist is someone wanted to fabricate it. But between 1978 to 2011, I never talked about what I did. I was very interested in fighting for people's rights. I was organizing protests at MIT. I organized food service workers. I wanted to understand how systems of power worked. This was interesting, yeah. I did something pretty cool, but I wasn't interested in getting all the publicity and fame. I didn't in fact make a penny off of that. So just understand what I'm saying here. Working people just do the work. I was so excited to be able to do this. I wasn't thinking about making fucking money out of it. Oh, let me get a venture capitalist. Oh, let me call Bill Gates's father and he's gonna help me. No, none of that. It's an important thing to understand that when you are innovating something, you're not looking at making money off of it. You're doing it because there's this deep love of what you're doing. You're creating something. The fact that I could create this was so extraordinary. Think about it. I created something that all these people used. And by the way, I had to write the manual and I had to do, as Dr. Michelson said, the seminars. 
all of that stuff as a 14-year-old kid. Now, when I, 33 years later, in 2011, my dear mom who worked in a factory had gotten pulmonary fibrosis because before, you know, she used to work in a factory and then she went to get her computer science or her computer programming degree. And when she was dying in a suitcase, and I still have the suitcase right here, she had had the copyright in there, right? All my awards, all the computer code that Dr. Michelson talked about, beautifully organized. My mom was very organized, very, very frugal, but very organized. And she presented it to me three months before she died. The editor of Time Magazine came to my home because a friend said, hey, this guy invented email. And he looked and he said, Jesus Christ, this guy invented email. And he wrote an article called The Man Who Invented Email. Front page in Time Magazine, November 11th, 2011. Now, interesting, you have to understand, during the 1990s, I was called Dr. Email, not for the invention of email, but because I'd created a technology to analyze and route email. I originally did it for the White House. So I've been in the email multiple worlds. In fact, it was on the front page of MIT at that time. But this came out in time. The Smithsonian calls me. The Computer History Museum calls me. And I didn't know who to give it to. I decided to give it to the Smithsonian. And on February 16, 2012, it goes into the Smithsonian. A beautiful ceremony is held. I have some of the paperwork um, and the pictures in front of the Washington Monument. I'm signing all my work over. But the Smithsonian agreed that they would display this for all young kids because I wanted to inspire young people. And the day it went into the Smithsonian, the next day a Washington Post reporter writes an article called Shiva Iadre honored as the inventor of email. Instead of celebrating that, a racist fucking piece of shit historian at University of Wisconsin who thought he owned the history of email. That's how these academic nerds are. They like to own something. He was so pissed off that that article came out, he called me all sorts of names, a fraud, and he was tied like this to Raytheon, which is the $37 billion defense company who was using the at symbol on their website to say they were the inventors of email because they had some nerd who looked like a nerd, and all he had done was created a caveman version of Reddit at best. And they had conflated him, right? This is what I'm calling stealing credit to be the inventor of email. So when my stuff went to the Smithsonian, it did two, two things, which was unexpected. It reset the history of email to the truth, but it also threatened a $37 billion military industrial company who was making money off their brand by getting cybersecurity contracts. Because if you're applying for government contracts, oh, we invented email, you're likely going to get that contract. I didn't know all of this. Thousands of calls come into MIT to say I should be fired. How dare. And by the way, I was teaching a free course at MIT. Not like Elizabeth Warren while running my company. And I see all this nonsense taking place. I'm like, what the hell's going on? And that's when I realized what was really going on was, wait a minute. I won all these awards at MIT. I'm the model minority that they use, but they have a problem because I created email before I came to MIT. It was done in Newark, New Jersey. You see, this is doesn't compute for them. And it's a serious problem because, because it means you don't have to go to fucking MIT to create something great as email. You could do it in Newark, New Jersey with the kind of people, the support I have, the, a loving mentor, right? A loving family and people like Stella Alexiak. And this is the extraordinary story here. Just like Philo Farnsworth created TV in Franklin, Idaho, 
I created TV as a 14 year old kid in Newark, New Jersey, not the military industrial academic complex, not driven by power, profit and control, which is what they're driven by, but with really truth, science, freedom, having all this access and in a health, in a medical school, think about that. If you wanna talk about truth, freedom, health, email came out in the environment of truth, freedom and health. Email did not get created by a world where you're killing people. It got created in a medical institution where people are saving people. Nurses and doctors, you follow what I'm saying? They want us to believe that things come from death. Email came from a life-saving institution. And that is what they do not want people to cherish. And that is why when the story went in, it was such vitriol, such racism, such casteism. But it took me four years to fight it because I had to get my wrap my head around it because I had to fight for myself, fight for that 14-year-old kid. And then we filed a lawsuit against Gawker Media, who called me all these names. Blogs were out there saying this curry stain Indian should be beaten and hanged. And no Indian stood up, by the way. Think about that. If I was a Jewish kid and someone was saying this Jew should be beaten and hanged, I'm sure there would be all sorts of defamation lawsuits. But Indians are trained to be actually white supremacists. This is what the irony is. They're trained to be subservient, to be house slaves. So when the story came out, not one Indian stood up for me. Oh, only white people innovate. Only people go to, you know, you must have done it in the military industrial complex. It's fascinating. So my own race, who are mainly Brahmins in the United States, like this dude, Vivek Ramachitswami, whatever the hell he is, okay? They were the Brahmins. Only they get to innovate. And let me bring it back home. Brahmins is the upper caste. You know, they call people in Boston the Boston Brahmins, like the Kennedys were called the Boston Brahmins. It's a very interesting word. Only the Brahmins are smart. And the rest of you are dumb fucks. And that's where we're at today. Only someone called Kennedy and only someone called Trump can run for office. How dare you try to run for office? Right? This is a caste system we live in right now. I thought I left India. My parents said, but we have a caste system in the United States. It's worse than racism. It's a multiracial caste system. And But they have a serious fucking problem because I'm not dead. I am alive. And I fought this. And we won in federal court. We drove that company Gawker into bankruptcy. And all the three defamatory articles saying I didn't invent email were forced to be pulled down. But Wikipedia is a racist fucking organization. Run by a bunch of probably liberal pedophiles. Like many of these academics. But the problem that they have is I'm alive. I'm a fighter. We have our movement. And everyone, the truth, the truth is so black and white. And people are starting to recognize, wait a minute, why is there a controversy? And that controversy will lead you back to the fact they do, they want to take away Matt's right, Marianne's right, and, you know, Deanna's right, Samantha's right, Tracy's right, and all your children's right, that you cannot innovate. You must be ordained by them. And then you get to be a nerd. You follow what I'm saying? That's a caste system. 
And that's what we're living in right now. So the invention of email is a very, very powerful truth where it took place because it should motivate you and your children to realize innovation can occur anytime, anyplace by anybody. And this story, the truth of this is shattering the swarm. It's saying, fuck you. And that's why I put inventor of email. And that's why I put MIT PhD because every time I put that, they fucking hate me and they hate you. Oh, why do you say inventor? You know what? Fucking invented email. Fuck off. You have a problem with that? Because if you have a visceral problem with that, that means you don't believe anyone can invent except the elites. And that's why the inventor of email and the invention of email is very, very important. That's why we've decided to say August is invention, international invention of email month, period. And we're going to share stories of it every day. There you go. So next time you have a 14, 13, 14 year old kid, for God's sake, support that kid. Okay. Let him do radical things. And by the way, I've started a very small foundation. We select eight to 10 kids, Innovation Corps. You can go to innovationcorps.org and tell your kids to apply. They get a little bit of money, about a thousand bucks. I try to do mentoring. And there's a lot of smart people in this world. And they're not at MIT and Harvard. In fact, a lot of people at MIT and Harvard got there, 50% of them, because mom and papa made a phone call, like Booby fucking Kennedy's parents, like Jared Kushner's fucking parents. These people are not innovators or bloodsuckers. They're parasites. And that's why our run for president and our movement for truth, freedom, and health is so powerful because we're dignifying us. We're taking credit for us who actually do the work. And we're not going to bow down to these people. And our word is getting out there. In fact, in 2020, a half a billion people know about us. And that's why they're fucked right now. Because every day they make me invisible, people are wondering, wait a minute. He's the one who fought Fauci. He's the one who did the election system stuff. Why are you not interviewing him, fucker Carlson? You fucking bastard who grew up in the Swanson family empire, you little CIA dipshit. Joe Rogan, you doofus. You're paid off by Spotify. You only cover stuff when it's convenient for you and you act like you're smart. You're eating maggots on some fucking crazy ass show and you are the one who's deciding my future. Fuck off. And that anger is coming up because people are realizing, wait a minute, this guy did all the work and you don't cover him. And and the more they try to make our movement and us invisible, they're more they're, we're going to cut them with a thousand razor blades. That's what we're doing. And that's why it's important all of you recognize that not only does innovation occur anytime, anyplace by anybody, but every one of you is a walking nuclear bomb. And the way you ignite that is through system science. You have to understand the science of systems. Email was a system. And my journey has been organized that science so you can use this for liberating yourself. You can use it for creating email. You can use it for figuring out your body. And that's what Truth Freedom Health is. It's a movement. It's a movement of your consciousness. Now, the issue is, do you want to take, do you want to seize it? Do you want to seize the day? Do you want to learn this knowledge? Not only for you, but your families. That's what this is about. This is about you becoming a whole human being, a co-creator with God. That's what it's about. Truth, freedom, and health, those principles go back to ancient principles. 
that have existed in time immemorial. And the elites, by the way, learn these principles and they use them for power, profit, control. Henry Kissinger knows everything of system science, but he's an evil motherfucker. And about 10 to 20,000 evil motherfuckers in the world are the ones who know the knowledge of systems and they manipulate it for their goal, power, profit, control. Well, guess what? I used to teach this at the number one institutions and I've made this knowledge accessible to everyone. So what, what should you do? Number one, know that I'm running for president. No, we finally have one of us. We don't have to settle for the lesser of two evils. That's a very brainwashed thinking. Oh, well, you're running as an independent. I'm not sure if, whether you win. Shut the fuck up. The issue is we have to build a movement because it is movements that have always changed the world. Bottoms up movements. And do you want to be part of building a movement or do you want to just do this lesser of two evils nonsense? Because the lesser of two evils nonsense has destroyed your child's health where your child will have a shorter lifespan than you over the last 80 years. We're building a movement. My running for office is to galvanize a movement. Don't talk to me about whether independent can win or not. Stupid. We don't want to talk to you. Get out of our way. We want to talk to people who want to build a movement. How do you do that? Well, you can start very simply. Go to shiverforpresident.com, put a bumper sticker on the back windshield of your car, wherever you are, any part of the world, because you're sending a signal. We want one of us. We're done with you guys. Number two, download a flyer, go hand it out, download cards. Number three, learn the science of systems. I put it all out there for you. You can donate. I give it away back to you. But become a truth, freedom, and health warrior scholar. You have to learn how to fight and you have to learn the science. And you're getting the best teacher on the planet because I do both. And we have a lot of good teachers on this call. Our model is learn, teach, and serve. You learn it, you teach it, you serve. And you will become on the level of a PhD anywhere in the world. You will be a scientist, you will be a freedom fighter, and you will become a health activist. All three, you need all three things. So, yes, the invention of email is a powerful system, but truth, freedom, and health is far more powerful than email. Trust me. Because it's a system that's going to liberate humanity. And that's what this low-caste kid who invented email, who never forgot where he came from, loves his people, is very, very honored to, to offer. And so we have a huge opportunity. Thank you. So to people on StreamYard, I hope this is valuable for all of you, but we're going to go back to our town hall right now. Um, get involved and uh, be the light. That's my thing. And remember, August is International Email Month. So all of you on StreamYard and all the channels listening, go right now to shivaforpresident.com volunteer because we got to get on the ballot in every state. That's going to be the next war. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to get on the ballot in every state. And every one of you here can be part of that 20 minutes a day. Go sign up, get a bumper sticker, go to truthfreedomhealth.com. Thank you, everyone. Be the light. I got to go back to